Good. We are um, continuing this series for this term called Empower and Kingdom, and uh, we're following the story of um, the early church and its amazing witness to the world as uh, the kingdom of God bursts out of Jerusalem and out of Israel um, uh, from the ends of the earth to the heart of empire. And we're going to see many of the challenges which were confronted, uh, that confronted that early church and how it, um, the witness uh, in its faithfulness over, overcame all of those things. If you were watching the news on Saturday, you might have seen that um, three men were arrested um, just about 200 yards from here in Lonsdale Square. Um, they were arrested on suspicion of terrorism after a fire at um, a publishing house. Um, the publisher had agreed to publish a controversial novel about one of the Prophet Muhammad's wives, and it's believed that a petrol bomb was pushed through um, her house uh, letterbox. Um, unfortunately, everybody was evacuated and no one was injured. But it turns out that Random House, the big um, publisher in so Soho Square, had already decided not to publish the book, which it was planning to for fear of reprisals. I think we need to be really careful of the sort of prejudice about Islamic extremism, which is quite pervasive in our um, culture. Um, uh, it's very easy to be sucked in to it. And in some ways, this passage is going to speak to that, to that prejudice. Uh, but at the same time, uh, I think that story is indicative of the fact that, um, well, religion is, um, uh, is understood by people, is perceived by people, not simply for what people say, but for the way that they behave. People see the way that uh, uh, people behave uh, before they hear what they say. As uh, someone once said, that um, uh, he does not believe that does not live according to his belief, as if to say that the way we live surely says as much about our beliefs, if not more, than what we actually say that we believe. And this is a story about religious violence, about intolerance and brutality. Um, it's a difficult story, um, but a really very important one. The observance amongst you will notice that um, we've slightly accelerated in uh, our studies in Acts. Uh, that's all my fault because uh, I um, got off my own schedule after only three weeks. I had a really good plan for getting through the whole book of Acts before Christmas and then got all a bit too into it and preached on the first three chapters by which um, uh, system we'd be here in 2010 still preaching the same book. So I've had to accelerate slightly. What I'll try and do is fill in some of the gaps. And if you look on the website, you'll find some talks. And I'll maybe fill in some of the spaces. But for now, this is a really significant milestone in this story of empire and kingdom. And I tell you that one of the most important things about this story um, isn't simply Stephen. Um, it's somebody who was there. The reason why this story is so significant is because of um, a man who was standing watching. And if you look in verse 58 of Acts chapter 7, you'll see who it was. It says, um, they dragged him outside the city and began to stone him. And meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. The witnesses are those people doing the stoning who'd been making the accusations against Stephen. And he looked after their coats while they did it. And uh, if you know how this story unfolds at all, you know that Saul later becomes Paul. 
he becomes uh, probably the most significant witness to Jesus in the ancient world. Uh, it becomes that remarkable evangelist and uh, uh, the writer of those beautiful and profound epistles which make up so much of the rest of the New Testament. Saul was standing there holding their coats while they did that. In fact, the first verse of the next chapter actually makes this very clear. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. This is an event which Saul never forgot. He makes reference to it later on when he gives a sort of biography of his own life. It's in, uh, don't look there now, but it's in Acts 22, uh, 20. And the first question I think is, why is Paul so struck by this event? Because the truth is that religious martyrs were really common in Judaism. Um, the previous few centuries before Jesus had seen loads, I mean hundreds if not thousands, of Jewish martyrs. Uh, they tried to stand up against all sorts of different armies and oppressors and had been martyrs for their faith and sort of witnesses to the truth of uh, what they believe. You know, somebody who's prepared to lie, lay down their life for the, what they believe must be very serious about it. But why should this be influential on Paul? Well, it wasn't the fact that Stephen was a martyr, that he was prepared to die for what he believed. It was the manner of his death. Religious martyrs, certainly in the Jewish tradition, I suppose in, in general, tend to die uttering curses, uttering judgment. They would say something like, don't you think that my death doesn't matter? Don't you think that God isn't watching? And one day, the righteous judgment of God will pour down on you and you will know how serious what you have done is. Stephen's death is not like that at all. And it is uh, something which has a profound influence on Paul. Look in verse um, uh, 59. He says, his final words... Are, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Who do those words mirror? Yeah. The thing that is really remarkable about Stephen's death is the consistency of his life and his death. The thing that is remarkable about the early church was that they proclaimed a message of the mercy and the goodness and the forgiveness of God. It was a, a radical message, one that I think we often take for granted if we've grown up around Christianity, that we sort of get that that's what God's like for uh, the Jews of Jesus' day, for religious people, I think, across the world. That is a profound message about what God is like. And Stephen's death was so significant because he didn't just say those things, he lived them to the very end. And even faced with the brutality of an unjust um, uh, uh, trial and murder, his final words echo Jesus and says, uh, Lord, don't hold their sins against them. It had a profound effect on uh, Paul. He remembered it his whole life. It was almost as if he saw for the first time, um, even in the midst of his fervor for Judaism, because that's where he started, he saw the difference between the vitriol and the hatred of his own tradition and the peace and the hope and the mercy and the forgiveness and the consistency of Stephen and his witness. I think one of the reasons this is so important is because all too often Christians have actually really failed to live in accordance with their belief. Um, I think it's probably one of the most uh, well-spoken um, uh, criticisms of religion. Religion causes hatred and violence and wars. It divides people and makes people ugly. It makes them hate each other. 
Um, and I think the sad truth is that if you look at the history of the world, um, well, that's largely true. And um, uh, Christianity is no way exempt from that criticism. But um, the early church was profoundly different. I think all too often Christians have failed to behave in accordance with their beliefs. You don't really need me to give you examples. They're all fairly obvious, talking about the Crusades or the Spanish Inquisition is all a bit too easy. But um, if you look at religious conflict at the time of the Reformation, the uh, violence between Catholics and uh, Protestants, if you look at the way that um, uh, Christians have dealt with people who have different opinions than them, who, you know, within the church, um, the uh, the trials over Anglo-Catholicism in the 19th century, the way people dealt with Pentecostalism at the beginning of the 20th century, the uh, way people dealt with uh, evangelicals in the middle of the 20th century, the way uh, charismatics were dealt with, the way the emerging church is being dealt with today. All of these things, while there are important debates about truth, all of these things, I think, are deeply compromised by the way that they happen. Um, the way that we behave is just as important as the truth of our position. And Christians all too often have simply failed to live through the love and the mercy and the goodness of God in their quest for truth. What happens? Well, I think what was happening to the um, uh, Jews of Jesus' day is the same thing that happens to Muslims today and to Christians when they get into trouble as well, is that when something that we hold as sacred is threatened, we feel incredibly defensive and I think Stephen wants us in this story to see that God does not need to be defended. He is big enough to sustain his purposes despite the worst efforts of humanity. That's what this passage is going to be all about. We're actually going to follow the whole of Acts 7. And it is the story of God sustaining his purposes despite the worst efforts of humanity. Ultimately, our conclusion is going to be that the message of the story is that we do not venerate the letter of the law, but the spirit of it. That we don't simply make statements about the importance of God or the importance of the Bible, but that we need to do what these things say. That was one of the great failings of religion throughout history. So when um, uh, flip back to the beginning of uh, Acts chapter 7, we're going to uh, try and get through this whole chapter. It's going to be a, a whistle-stop tour because there's an awful lot going on here, but I'm going to accelerate right through it. Um, and uh, the context is that Stephen is dragged before uh, a bit of a um, shambolic court. And uh, if you see at the end of Acts 6, you realize what's going on. Uh, somebody's made accusations um, uh, against him. Uh, in uh, verse 13, they, followed, they produced false witnesses who testified that this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs of Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the San Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen. Stephen becomes um, a martyr for Christianity because he becomes the focus of two criticisms which, you know what, they're not far from the truth but they're a twisted version of the truth. And they take a, the focus, Stephen takes the brunt of all of the threat that Judaism of this time is feeling by Christianity. Two challenges. One, that this, these Christians, Stephen in particular, is undermining Moses and his law. And secondly, that he's desecrating this sacred place, which is our temple, by saying that God isn't there, that that's not the important thing. Those are the two accusations which are laid down. And what um, Stephen does is stands up and gives a quite remarkable speech. It's been criticised for being incredibly wordy. Um, 
but actually it's very sophisticated and very clever. And I think this speech, which fills most of chapter 7, uh, serves two purposes. The first thing it is, and I think Luke very deliberately includes it, is that it's a sort of potted history of the Old Testament. So if the Old Testament sort of um, confuses you a little bit, this might be helpful. I think Luke has deliberately chosen to include all of the detail of this, because for Gentile readers, having a little potted view of the Old Testament is really helpful to sort of see God's um, uh, uh, dealings with humanity uh, throughout the uh, Old Testament story. Um, I think that's one of the purposes it serves. And uh, the second is very clearly to defend against these two accusations which are laid, about, uh, laid against Christians, that they don't care about Moses' law, that they're trying to do away with God's word in the Old Testament, and um, that they don't care about the temple and the sacred place where God is believed to dwell. So what we're going to do first is a lightning overview of the Old Testament. This is um, uh, verses 2 to 43. In verse 2, it starts off with God. I think Stephen very deliberately starts off with God because one of the accusations is you're not taking God seriously. You're not, um, uh, uh, you're not being uh, respectful to God. And he says in verse 2, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he li still lived in Mesopotamia. The story of the Old Testament, as far as the Jewish people are concerned, begins with Abraham. He is the great patriarch. He's the beginning of the story. And um, uh, Abraham is called by God. God takes the initiative, and that's going to be one of the big themes of this story, and uh, makes promises to Abraham, calls him out of his land, gets him to leave behind all of his earthly possessions, and to go to a land, and that land is the land which will be Israel. But he has no inheritance there. Uh, Stephen makes the point he doesn't even own a square foot of the land. But he's to dwell in that place as a statement of the fact that God has promised that this land will be a holy place, that this will be uh, the place for his descendants to live. And um, uh, God makes a promise to him. And um, that promise is that he'll have numerous descendants, that there'll be a great nation, that God is going to uh, essentially to rescue the world through his descendants. And then God promises that those um, uh, descendants will be slaves. He doesn't say where, but of course it's the slavery in Egypt. This is in verse 6. And I think the point is that um, uh, that slavery is part of God's plan. Um, uh, then we have uh, Isaac, who's uh, Abraham's son, and this covenant of circumcision, this covenant which is uh, given to them to make them distinct that um, uh, they are somehow separate from other people. They are God's chosen people. Uh, Isaac gives birth to Jacob, and Jacob is the father of the 12 patriarchs, uh, his 12 sons. Uh, this is probably where it starts to ring some bells with you, if, um, if it's not so far. Yeah, uh, Jacob has 12 sons. Jacob's name gets changed to Israel at some point. And uh, anybody know what his 12 sons are called? Shall I start you off? Reuben was the eldest of the children of Israel, with Simeon and Levi the next in line. Naphtali and Issachar with Asher and Dan. Zebulun and Gad took the total to nine. Jacob, Jacob and sons. <laughs> Benjamin and Judah, which leaves only one. Jacob, Jacob and sons. Joseph, Jacob's favorite son. That's the second week in a row I've ended up quoting ridiculous song lyrics, isn't it? <laughs> it's just what it reminded me of. It makes it stay, absolutely. Um, so there are these uh, 12 
um, patriarchs who become the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, they are, uh, you know the story, how that story unfolds. Um, uh, Joseph goes off into Egypt and uh, wins the favor of Pharaoh and comes up with this great plan to survive the uh, famine which is to come. He becomes very uh, significant, invites all of his family down to Egypt and they all dwell there. Um, uh, then a new Pharaoh comes along, doesn't know the backstory, and uh, the uh, um, Israelites all start to expand in numbers and they're brutally oppressed. Uh, and this is the story leading up to Moses. Um, and uh, the Pharaoh starts to tell the midwives to allow the uh, Israelite children to die. And uh, God is watching this. God actually sees this brutality and this injustice. And um, uh, Moses uh, is a child, not an ordinary child, who is one of these who's put out to die, gets put in a little basket, floats down, gets picked up by Pharaoh's daughter. It's all sort of ringing some bells. And um, gets taken into court, uh, grows up in the court as a really influential figure, but uh, works out that he's actually an Israelite, and one day goes out to see how the Israelites are all doing, and uh, discovers them being, um, uh, one of them being beaten up by an Egyptian. Uh, Moses decides to make a saviour of himself, wades into the fight, and ends up killing the Egyptian. Uh, the next day, he goes back and sees two uh, Israelites fighting with each other, and he tries to break it up. And, he, and they say to him, uh, who made you, where is this, I'm losing my track here because I'm trying to go too fast, um, uh, who made you uh, judge and ruler over us? See that? Is that in verse 40? 20. Verse 20, thank you. Good. You keep me on track. Um, Verse 30, uh, so he, uh, Moses, when he realizes that it's known what he's done, runs for the hills, and um, uh, he hides out there for 40-odd years farming sheep, and uh, after those 40 years, uh, basically living as a failure, you know, he tried to step in, he tried to fix the problem, and uh, after those 40 years, he bumps into a burning bush on top of a mountain, and um, uh, God calls him back to go and do the job which he tried to do by himself, and uh, Moses gets sent into Egypt uh, to rescue God's people. God's point is, I have seen the oppression of my people. I still care. My promise is still valid. And I want you to go back and speak on my behalf and go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. You with me? It's all right. Rattling through the Old Testament. Um, so Moses uh, goes in there, you have all of the plagues, um, uh, Pharaoh keeps changing his mind, then ultimately you have the uh, most horrific and most dramatic of uh, the plagues, which is the final one, the night of Passover and the death of the firstborn children, and Pharaoh finally lets the uh, Israelites go, they run from um, uh, Egypt carrying only what they can carry on their backs through the Red Sea and into the desert, and God has finally rescued his people. There in the desert they meet with God, uh, Moses goes up Mount Sinai, comes down with the Ten Commandments which is a covenant of how they are to live as the people of God. But while he's up there, what do they do? What do they do? Yeah. They go, where is this Moses fella gone? Uh, we don't know who he was anyway. What we need is some proper gods. Uh, Aaron, would you melt down some of this gold we seem to have managed to smuggle out of Egypt and make us some golden calves? Uh, the story that Stephen seems to be making is that the people, even despite the fact that God keeps rescuing them, keep turning their backs on him. So Moses goes on, and um, uh, uh, Stephen makes the point quite clearly in verse, where's the bit, verse 39, where, that's why I can't find it, I'm over the page. Verse 39, our, our fathers refused to obey him, instead they rejected him, and their hearts turned back to Egypt. So uh, they reject the rescue that God has offered to them. And uh, then, really interestingly, in verse 
30, hang on, 44. In verse 44, in some ways, the whole of the rest of the Old Testament is summed up in this. The rest of the Old Testament is full of the story of the nation of Israel, the fact that God keeps stepping back in to rescue his people. You start off with Judges, the book of Judges. God keeps trying to get them back on track. And then you end up with Kings. You start off with um, uh, um, uh, Saul and then great King David and then Solomon and then a whole succession of Kings in the books of Kings. And then a, a pile of prophets. And all of them are trying to turn the people's hearts back to God. And constantly they go after the gods, they turn away, and they will not have the salvation which God has offered to them. So uh, verse, 30, uh, verse 44 in some ways summarizes this whole thing. Uh, no, it doesn't. Gosh, this is hard. Um, so it is the story of the people of God turning their backs on um, God. So what is Stephen's point in that sort of crazy little super fast narrative of the Old Testament? Well, I think it's this. I think the point is that uh, the story of God's plan of redemption has been all about God's initiative. It is God who steps in. I think it's not um, insignificant that he makes the point that Moses tried to do it himself. Moses actually tried to walk in and fix the problem, be a saviour, um, and ended up murdering someone and getting rejected by his own people. It didn't work when Moses tried to do it the first time, but it's been God's initiative constantly. God has worked to rescue his people and to fulfill his promises. Stephen's point is that um, the people consistently reject the word of God, and yet, despite all of that, God still works out his purposes. Here is um, uh, Stephen's ultimate point in this uh, dialogue. You accuse us, Christians, of rejecting the law of Moses, rejecting the sacred scriptures in the Old Testament. It's not us who reject it. It's you lot. You are just like your fathers, just like they rejected Moses, just like they rejected all of those prophets, in the same way you have rejected Jesus. So don't accuse us of not respecting uh, the sacred scriptures of the Old Testament. You've consistently, just like your fathers, failed. And just because you venerate the book means nothing. Venerating the book is nothing. Obedience to what the book says is what it's all about. It's not us who re reject Moses. It is you. You are just like your forefathers. Uh, he makes the point in verse 37 that uh, Moses even predicted the fact that this Messiah would come, that one day God would send a prophet just like Moses. Um, and uh, Moses was clearly worried that the people would reject this prophet just as they had rejected Jesus, uh, just as they rejected Moses. And the truth seems to be working its way out. You are just like your fathers. The second part in verses 44 to 50 is the rejection of the idea that um, uh, the Christians don't take the temple seriously. And I think this is a really interesting uh, little debate. In verse 44, um, Stephen starts off by making the point that God never used to live in a, te in a temple. If you think that the temple is the heart of worship, if you think that this building is the place where God dwells, you need to remember that back when they were in the desert, there was no temple and God was still with them. They had this tent thing called a tabernacle, which they carried around. And um, uh, only uh, really late on, after David, uh, it was Solomon who built the house for him. So the temple's only been part of the story of people's engagement with God. If you are so tied to this temple idea, you're missing the point of the big uh, picture. And uh, he goes on in verse 48 to 50, that uh, your own Old Testament, your own Bible says that uh, God doesn't live in houses made by men. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord?
They had got obsessed with their own tradition, their own history, and the beauty of this sacred building. Stephen seems to be making the point that they have essentially replaced worship of God with worship of this building. You replace the living God with a building and you worship your temple rather than the God for whom it was built. And so Stephen's final judgment on these people is in verse 51 to 53. He says, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? You even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who received the law that was put into effect through angels have not obeyed it. His point is quite clear, isn't it? That you people who venerate the law, you people who claim that you are children of Moses, you're just like your fathers, and you fail to actually do what the law talks about, and you fail to actually obey what Moses said. You have venerated your own tradition, your own history, and your own building beyond the spirit of all of those things. You fail to understand what these things really are all about. Now, as a, a criticism, I think that's probably quite easy for most of us to deal with. Most of evangelical um, Christianity and theology is based on those kind of ideas. I don't think any of you are sort of shocked by um, uh, that sort of critique of Judaism. I think the place where it gets a little bit complicated is how we make application of this. What are the places where we've built temples, where we've venerated the letter over the spirit of the law? How do you do the sort of hermeneutic on this and apply it to us? Because I think it's far too easy to make the jump that people often do in sermons like this um, to criticising traditional Christians with old hymn books and crumbly old buildings. Uh, you've heard that sermon, haven't you, quite a lot of times in some funky young church where they say, yeah, those old people with their silly old liturgy and their silly old prayer book, they're not being obedient to the Holy Spirit, but we are. I'm not happy with that as a criticism. And I know plenty of people who worship in crumbly old buildings with funny old prayer books who are deeply um, uh, uh, obedient to the Holy Spirit and richly in relationship with God. That's a far too easy criticism to make. My warning, I think, for us, and I don't want to make a really big deal out of this, but I want us to have the humility um, to actually listen to this story and uh, to take the criticism on for ourselves. Just as those... Uh, Jewish people had venerated their tradition and their buildings to the point that they couldn't actually see God at work anymore, that they'd have a relationship with their religion and their uh, temple rather than having a relationship with the living God. I think I want us to uh, listen to the warning that is there for us. You see, because I think our traditions are much more dangerous because they're not obvious. The tradition that we're part of, most of you, if you've kind of been around church on the corner for a while, or if you've been part of the sort of um, uh, young Christian scene in uh, Britain for a while, you're probably part of the sort of evangelical movement. The evangelical um, uh, 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 tradition of the 20th century is it's about, it's probably about 60 years old now in its current form. And um, uh, back in the 1950s, when people like John Stott started to articulate this theology, it was radical and fresh and profoundly influential. It revitalized uh, the British church. The great danger for us, I think, is that it's in danger of fossilizing. And uh, what started off as radical and fresh has kind of become sacred and is something that we can't uh, mess with without being really quite afraid of what people will say about us. And so things like the way that we articulate the gospel, 
the language that we use and the sort of images and pictures that we paint in order to try and help people to understand the gospel are kind of getting quite fossilized. And it's hard to articulate the gospel using other language than those things. Uh, our patterns of worship and the way that we articulate what it means to be a Christian. All of those things are things that we've kind of inherited from our tradition. Now, it's not that any of these things are bad things. But we need to be very careful of the time when uh, we are actually more defined by our tradition than by the Holy Spirit working through the Bible. The way we articulate the gospel, our language, some of the words that we use. And I think we could even go as um, far as to say uh, that some aspects of our theology are more rooted in our tradition, in the way that we've been brought up and the way we've been taught to understand the Bible, than actually in uh, the Holy Spirit at work through the Word of God. We need to be very careful of the fear that comes from uh, someone challenging our traditions because it makes us feel like we're going to lose God if those things are taken away. We get so sort of rooted in the way that we've been brought up to do stuff, which was really good. If you're a Christian now, the way that you've been brought up to relate to God is a, a, an important thing to you. But there's a great fear that in uh, someone challenging that or someone doing it different, differently to that, that we're somehow going to lose our connection uh, to God. That was essentially what was going on to the Jews of Jesus' day. They had a way to relate to God. And when someone challenged that, they got very, very angry. Some things that are new are new and they're of God. Some things that are new are new and made by human hands. Likewise, some things that are old are old, but they're made by God. And some things which are old are old and made by human hands. What this is not a suggestion of is a, uh, an acceptance of everything. Not that by any means at all. But what I'm asking for is a humility to say that we don't know everything. And the tradition that we've grown up with, the way that we articulate our faith, or the truths that have been laid down to us as core uh, and uh, of serious important, we need a just enough humility to say that we don't know everything. That um, if someone comes along and challenges those things, that they might actually have something. And even more than that, even if people actually are wrong, one of the most important parts of this story is that the way we deal with our disagreements, the way we deal with those people who uh, we're uncomfortable with what they think, is just as important as being right. It's not an acceptance of everything at all. In fact, um, uh, Stephen is a very powerful witness to truth. He's um, quite vehement in standing up for uh, what he knows to be right and very confrontational in that. But those things are rooted in love and compassion. The way we behave in difficult circumstances, I think, either validates or totally undermines what we say we believe. That was the difference between Stephen and other <coughs> martyrs that Paul had seen in the past. The way that he believed, in, even in the most extreme circumstance, really validated the thing that Stephen was saying. So I think, likewise, we need to be witnesses to Christ, not simply in our words, but in the way that we deal with people disagreeing with us, with conflict. And, of course, that really comes down to the way we behave together as church. And um, I've always been very proud of the fact that Church on the Corner um, is a church which has people from lots of different traditions, even just within evangelicalism, but... Um, people come from different things. People have different priorities in their faith. And uh, some of you are right, others of you are wrong. <laughs> and we can cope with even you of people who are wrong. No, 
We are a church which actually manages to hold together community and gospel with love. And there are tensions sometimes, there are difficulties, people come with different agendas, but I want us to take very seriously that part of our witness is that we don't fall into the kind of bitter wrangling that I know you have seen in churches. And I think it's a really big deal for the church with the struggles it's going through at the moment. Some of these massive questions like uh, sexuality. Um, and uh, there are really very significant and important biblical debates to be done. But perhaps the thing I'm worried about just as much as that debate which needs to happen is the way that people deal with these things. Because we could totally undermine any credibility we have in the eyes of a watching world by the sort of bitterness and vitriol which a little bit too often is seen uh, coming out of the mouths of Christians. Stephen is a profound witness to Jesus Christ. He's profound in his understanding of the fact that God has been dealing faithfully with his people. His promises have been consistent even against the best efforts of humanity to put that down. And I want you to, uh, one of the things to go away with tonight is to remember that. You know when we get really afraid when somebody challenges our faith or we see that a church is struggling or um, uh, something in our culture seems to threaten Christianity? Remember that God has sustained his kingdom even in the face of the best efforts of um, uh, humanity. Don't be afraid that God's not big enough to fight his corner. But likewise, though it is our job and uh, a difficult calling it is too, to stand up and proclaim the truth of the goodness, the mercy and the forgiveness of God, all of those things need to be consistent because in the way that we articulate those things and the way that we love the way that we deal with our enemies, the way that we deal with those who hate us, those things are perhaps just as profound a witness to a watching world as the words that we say. This story ultimately had the biggest impact on Paul. It was Paul who saw the consistency of Stephen's words and life. And it was Paul who was transformed by those things when he encountered the risen Jesus Christ, who went on to have one of the most profound impacts on the world. And we want just a little bit of that for our place here in London. We want the consistency of our words and our lives to have that level, just a little bit of that level of impact on the watching world around us. So let us pray that God gives us the spirit that inspired Stephen to be able to live his life with that consistency, to live out the love and the truth of God all at the same time. Let us pray. Father, we're conscious of living in a world where many people who um, claim to be your servants live out their lives in ways which uh, stand utterly opposed uh, to uh, who you are. Lord, we understand that um, it's really hard when things that are sacred to us are threatened and that we're afraid and uh, we get angry. Lord, we pray that we might have both that image of you that Stephen had as he looked and saw heaven opened and Christ standing beside the throne, that image of you in your glory and your power so that we are not afraid and may we have that spirit that Stephen had the spirit of the holy God, that we might have the courage and the love to speak both truth 
and to live out the character of God before the eyes of a watching world. Amen.